namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So we come to um, uh, chapter nine of this uh, this particular book, this collection, called "The Link Between the Middle Teaching and the Middle Way." And in the previous edition, the uh, earlier um, translation, uh, this was this chapter was called "Breaking the Cycle." The middle teaching, Majjhima Dhammadesana, is the objective truth revealed, revealed by the Buddha. The truth that all things naturally accord with causes and conditions, and that they are not subject to the extreme or biased views fabricated by people to match their erroneous perceptions and their desires for the world to be a certain way. The middle teaching refers to dependent origination, the process of the interdependent arising of things. As outlined earlier, there are two formats or courses of dependent origination in reference to the suffering of human beings. The first format illustrates the arising, the second format illustrates the cessation of suffering. So this is all uh, familiar territory by now. So middle teaching describes these two processes. Origination, samudaya, the origination cycle of dependent origination, avijja, sankara, vijnana, so on and so forth, to jati, jara, marana, sokapari, deva, dukkha, domanasa, upayasa. That's the origin of suffering. And then cessation, nirodha. The cessation cycle of dependent origination, ignorance ceases, leading to volitional formations ceasing, to consciousness, uh, etc. Birth ceases, aging and death cease, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair all cease. And that's the cessation of suffering. Suffering is of primary concern to human beings. The origination cycle is presented to identify the source of suffering. And the first step is to outline the factors acting as a foundation for suffering. As for the cessation cycle, the term nirodha in the middle teaching has a broad range of meaning. Besides referring to the process leading to the cessation of suffering, it also refers to nibbana, freedom from suffering. The middle teaching incorporates both the cessation cycle and nibbana. By describing the teachings on suffering, the cause of suffering, cessation cycle, and the freedom from suffering, one may conclude that the entire essence of Buddha Dhamma has been captured. But this is not the case. The reason for this is that the middle teaching purely describes naturally occurring phenomena. It doesn't include the means of spiritual practice applied by human beings. So hence the, this chapter being about the, the middle teaching, uh, about dependent origination, and then the middle way, the path of practice or the method of practice. The cessation cycle, as found in the middle teaching, is depicted as a pure, i.e. theoretical or mechanical process of nature. It describes the necessary interrelated causes and conditions that lead to the end of suffering, but it does not explain the details of practical application. It doesn't specify what needs to be done in practical, in practical terms to reach this end. So uh, when we do the, the recitation, the chanting of the um, dependent origination and cessation, then we have that um, 
the um, has, uh, the um, evimitatsa kevalatsa dukkha kandatsa samudayo hoti. That's the origin of this whole mass of suffering. Then you just have these words avijaya taveva asesa viraga niroda. Um, uh, with the complete cessation of ignorance, there is a cessation of sankara. And what he's pointing to is like, yeah, avijaya taveva asesa viraga niroda. Right, but how do you get that? <laughs> that cessation of ignorance. How, how does that come about? And he's pointing out that these the patterns of arising and cessation they don't describe uh, uh, particular methods of practice. And then the the middle way is a shorthand for the eightfold path. So that's uh, it's talking the in this whole section he's talking about that connection between the eightfold path as a method of practice and the 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 way that things function according to. Uh, causality and uh, dependent origination arising and ceasing. So that makes sense so far. Please say if it doesn't. People may study the middle teaching and gain a gradual understanding of the cessation cycle and the principle of ending suffering, but they still require pla- practical advice to achieve results conforming to this principle. Our responsibility in regard to nature is to gain a knowledge. Initially, an intellectual grasp of natural truths, and then to apply this knowledge to spiritual practice. This is the link between objective natural processes and Dhamma practice. The Pali term for Dhamma practice, including methods of practice, is Patibhada. This term specifically refers to rules of practice, methods of practice, or ways of conducting one's life in order to reach the end of suffering. The Buddha set down this practice in conformity with the middle teaching on the cessation of suffering, and he called this practice the middle way, a practice. Majjima Patipada, or simply the middle way. It's a balanced practice corresponding with the laws of nature, and it gives results according to the natural cycle of cessation. It's impartial. It doesn't swing to either of the two extremes that cause entanglement or deviation from the correct path. The middle way can be simply referred to as the path. The path is comprised of eight factors, and because it leads to awakening, i.e. the state of a noble person, it's called the Noble Eightfold Path, Arya Atangika Magga. The Buddha said that this is an ancient path which has been traversed by the perfectly enlightened ones of the past. The Buddha rediscovered this path and revealed it to others, showing the way to those who are ready to be trained. This path of practice produces results in accord with the cessation cycle. It enables causes and conditions to proceed in an interconnected way until the natural processes sorry, until the natural process reaches its end. The achievement of the path marks the transition from the theoretical cycle of cessation, or from the preliminary knowledge of truth, to practical application. The transition from the theoretical cycle of cessation to practical application can be illustrated in this way. And then he goes through these um, the lists again: cessation of ignorance leading to the cessation of sankara, of then cessation of consciousness, and so on, leading to cessation of suffering. While the path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, that all leads to the cessation of suffering. Here are some significant points concerning the connection between the cessation cycle and the practice of the path. And and here here he spells out half a dozen different particular points or connections between these two. So the the theoretical map 
of um, arise, uh, uh, origination and cessation of dukkha, and then the um, uh, the relation to the eightfold path. One, the cessation cycle is a process occurring in nature. The path is a way of practice for human beings to achieve results in accord with this natural process. The path arises from applying knowledge of the cessation cycle. This knowledge is developed into a method of practice and one who follows this practice must have at least a rudimentary understanding of the cessation cycle. For this reason, the path begins with right view. So, then right view, samaditi, it's, um, it's, it's both a, um, a kind of conceptual understanding or seeing things in a, in a way or having a conceptual map that accords, like a map, you know, a map that accords with what's on the ground. You know, the, the lines on the map match the, the, the actuality of the landscape and the roads and the towns and the, uh, and the forests and whatnot. Um, so that aspect of right view is uh, it's a conceptual map that matches the, the reality of things. But uh, also, it's a, a mode of, of seeing. And when right view is, uh, is defined, it's often uh, described as being seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So rather than, uh, I, I like or I don't like, or this is mine or this is not mine, um, it's the, the framework of, you know, is there dukkha? Is there no dukkha? If there's dukkha, where's it, where's it come from? Where's the, where's the clinging that's causing it? And so forth. So it's a... Um, that, but in this respect, he's talking about it mostly in terms of understanding how that cessation cycle works as a sort of conceptual map, like a handbook for uh, informing the, um, the the development of, of the path. And as it says, um, that uh, the eightfold path begins with the right view, samaditi, uh, and so that then that conceptual knowledge or the understanding of how things work in terms of cause and effect and how dukkha comes to an end, he's saying that getting a clear picture of that, having that firmly established in mind, that's a, the, the appropriate starting point. And also there, there's many teachings that, that uh, re- relate to that, so, such as um, uh, all wholesome states are, are founded in right view, just as, just as the lightning of the sky uh, precedes the, the rising of the sun, so too right view precedes all wholesome states. So that there's a, a kind of preeminence or the, the, the priority of right view um, and, and why the Buddha often talks about right view coming first. It's sort of seeing things uh, clearly, it's seeing things in accordance with reality. So, any questions, thoughts? Okay. Second one. The cessation cycle deals directly with the relationship between causes and conditions. It's described as the cessation of causes and conditions that give rise to suffering. Cessation in this context is decisive and complete. It's an end to and a freedom from all problems. The path of practice, on the other hand, is flexible. The details of practice can be described in terms of different degrees of difficulty, and the eight factors of the path can be expanded upon into various levels of complexity. The path to liberation is gradual, and the reduction or elimination of problems is commensurate with the extent or degree of a person's practice. So this is saying how the, um, the way that we practice or the way we apply the different aspects of the, 
the eightfold path uh, is is flexible and um, uh, and different aspects of the path are going to have different degrees of difficulty relationship related to them and also that the uh, the development of the path is gradual so even though you might have a, a clear conceptual map of dependent origination and cessation um, the um, the path to arriving at that cessation of suffering it takes it takes time it's a gradual process it's not something that generally can uh, happen you know, in a in a finger snap but rather is a uh, uh, a gradual process which is why the, with the fourth noble truth the the path bhave tabanti it is to be developed it's like a it's a a, um, a learning process Thoughts, questions? I have a question. Yes. Yeah, also, I should say, do please feel to free to ask what, what you like because uh, this is pretty dry material and it kind of gets drier the further you go on. <laughs> so don't, don't expect to get to the kind of the, the grand finale where it's like the, kind of the closing scenes of a Marvel movie where you have this sort of grand battle in the middle of New York City with Bill. The evil finally being defeated by the good in a kind of glorious, multicolored um, uh, scenario. It's, he's a pretty dry writer, and it get, and it's and it gets gets drier as you go on. So uh, this is the, these are going to be the last readings that we have together in the next couple of days. And so um, please do feel free to ask what you like. So anyway, go right ahead. Okay, this is um, not fully formed, but uh, can you speak to samaditi, right view, a balanced view, and um, and self righteousness, which is something I think I struggle with personally mm-hmm. in my practice. So, like, how to Like differentiate between, um, or to have a wise approach to um, like seeing a situation that seems unjust or unfair or imbalanced, um, and then um, say we're seeing it clearly, um, and then differentiating that with Right here in this very hall, uh, probably about 20 or so years ago, uh, maybe more now, uh, one of the Anagarikas who lived here um, had very high moral standards. And um, so he, uh, he was very sincere, very dedicated, but he saw a, a lot of wrongness around him. And so he, he uh, tended to uh, be very critical of people who were doing, doing things in the, in the wrong way, or they, they shouldn't be doing this, they shouldn't be doing that, and 
and um, he was very uh, he get very concerned about wastefulness or about not being um, uh, or, be, or people being selfish uh, and such like. So anyway, um, it, it was a big issue in his practice. And uh, and and he was regularly going to myself or other ajans and and complaining about ajans <laughs> um, about all these things that were wrong. And uh, when and the, but the points that he made they were all quite valid. It's like you know, you know we shouldn't be wasteful. Yes, that person should be that uh, they should be more um, community minded or that that, that uh, this could be done in a more efficient way and such like. So he was right in some respects. But he suffered so much because of his attachment to his right, his rightness. And in this very hall, uh, one morning, uh, Lumpur Sameda spontaneously came up with the expression, right view is not the same as righteous views. That's the short version, probably for next year's t-shirt. <laughs> right view is not the same as righteous views. And so that... Um, uh, there was so in the context of the, that particular anagarika kind of having voiced a very um, vehement opinion about something or other, uh, and so <clears throat> it was um, it was a really good example of someone who's extremely sincere and good-hearted, but just uh, attached to that sense of, of righteousness and 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 uh, seeing <laughs> seeing wrongness everywhere uh, and feeling um, that they had to carry the torch to, to set things right. And and, uh, and so it, w- it was interesting that uh, it just, even living in a, a community of, of good-hearted and, and uh, people trying to live by the precepts, he couldn't bear it, you know, eventually and ended up leaving. But um, that um, uh, attachment to, to righteousness, because what happens is that the attention gets fixed on the particular issue you know, they, uh, that, that, that is a wasteful uh, practice, or that is, uh, that is not, not a good way to arrange things, or that is, we could be doing things better. And, it's, uh, and the attention goes on to the thing that could be different or should be different. And you're not noticing how it's being held in your own, your own mind, your own, your own jitta. And so that's what Lumpur Sumedha was pointing to there, that righteous view is not the same as right view. And that, uh, and, uh, Lumpocha similarly would, um, was, was very uh, alert to that and um, uh, he would, uh, an expression that he used was that you could be right in fact and wrong in Dhamma. So that you're, yes, what you're saying is true, <laughs> it's correct, but the way you're holding it and, and, and using it uh, in relationship to other people, you're using your rightness as a sort of a weapon to attack other people. And so then it just leads to more tension and conflict, difficulty. And so it doesn't mean that, that we should be passive, but it means turning the attention back onto the 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 attitude and to see well how how is this being held? What's um, uh, yes, I can see that this could be done in a better way, or that person's being selfish, or that's a that's a wasteful way of doing things. Um, now, how can I express that? What's an appropriate way of um, of so passing that perspective on, uh, how am I? Uh, am I sitting there, lying awake half the night, grinding my teeth and, and uh, being upset about that um, that wrong way that this is that something is being done? And to 
<coughs> to be both right in fact and right in dhamma is including the the um, uh, the the kind of um, uh, that self-creating habit as uh, and being aware of that and through noticing that then letting that go and say okay if I if if the I making and mind making is let go of there's still a better way that this could be done even if it didn't have anything, anything to do with me this would be a more efficient way to, to operate or this would work better for most people I think um, and so that there's almost always a way that the uh, things can be suggested or worked with that, that leave the ego out of it um, and as you say you know, compassionate action might be very appropriate but it, it can be that that action is taken but not from driven by ego and self-view but rather by attunement to mindfulness and wisdom and attunement to a particular situation and uh, and it's it's interesting that when when that self uh, creating habit is is dropped sometimes the, the action that is taken is far more effective and and, um, and also you find that you uh, you you're kind of more courageous when it isn't driven by ego that you're actually in a way prepared to sort of to risk more or to to do more when it's not about me and that uh, that uh, so it, it's a um, uh, it's a, a way of take, uh, uh, consciously taking the attention off the issue at least part, part of the attention and turning it back and say okay how is this being held uh, is this uh, Ajahn Chah used to use the expression having a club with metta written on it <laughs> let me apply my loving kindness to you, you know. You know, we're going to give you democracy if we have to kill all of you to do it. You know that kind of thing. That uh, that this, uh, I'm applying meta with this club, and they say, no, it does. It's not. You're calling it meta, but it's that's what's what's inside the tin is not what's written on the outside. Yeah, so you, it, you're fooling yourself. So that at least part of the the attention turned back onto the attitude. To say, okay, how is this being picked up? How is this being held? Uh, if I'm really yeah, steamed up about something. Is this the right time to speak, or maybe I should wait a little bit before I, I say something and just get a bit more of a perspective. And um, so, and that that helps enormously. Just uh, just a small degree of attention on the attitude, because almost always, if it's noticed, oh my goodness, I'm really upset about this, or I'm demonizing that person, you know, that one who's doing the porridge like that again, doesn't he know that's just not the way to do the porridge? Yeah. Um, and that, uh, you know, that becomes the sort of source of evil in the universe, is that the bad, the bad porridge maker, you know. And they go, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. I didn't even care about porridge six weeks ago, and now it's become this cause celeb. So, that uh, turning the attention back onto the attitude and just letting that awareness of the attitude have its effect that, that has a, a, a powerful balancing impact on, on situations so you know we it doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything it's it's not it's not uh, propose, uh, a kind of propounding a passive passivity or, or just switching off disconnecting but by recognizing those ego-centered habits 
and and training the the, the mind to to let go of those, then you you begin to learn how to to act from mindfulness and wisdom and attunement to situations, and then seeing the results. Okay, if you, if if you're working with a situation when it's not coming from self view. Then uh, what's the result? Well, it's actually quite enjoyable. <laughs> like, it's not such a burden. It's not, not so stressful. I'm not so afraid of getting outcomes that I don't like. Oh, this is quite good. And then you just letting that. Oh, this is good. <laughs> letting that that pleasant feeling or that have its own effect. That, okay, this is a this is a helpful, skillful way to go, and you, it can bring a good result in the in the world around us, and it feels uh, much more comfortable within us. Okay. So that encourages us to keep heading in that direction. Yes? You said that uh, metta uh, is the foundation for everything. Uh, in, I can't remember what book it was. I've said it a few times. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> One of the books yeah. I read it. Maybe I've read it. But, uh, would you say that uh, having that metta in, like, in general, that the, uh, abiding the Brahma Viharas, is the foundation for right view? Is that the same? Is it sort of like a synonym? Uh, uh, yes, I say it's very closely related, really, um, because meta in that respect of a, of a radical acceptance. Yeah. You know that uh, uh, in this moment it's like this. It doesn't mean to say that you like the way things are, but you're recognizing this is the way things are in this moment. There's an, there's an openness to that. And so it's, uh, I'd say it's, it's closely related to that quality of, of right view that um, this is the shape of the, the experiential world at the moment, it's like this. And that, um, and on that basis of acceptance, then uh, the, the other aspect of, of where, anyway, where, where the wisdom faculty comes in with respect to that is then a part of that acceptance is as a recognition of what's going to be wholesome, what's going to be unwholesome, what's going to be beneficial, what's not, what's going to be obstructive. And then that, uh, that right view, uh, then that sort of steers the, uh, the attention, the, the attention and intention towards what's going to be beneficial and wholesome, liberating and, and away from what's going to be obstructive and, and unwholesome. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just follow on from Alex's point. Um, I thought it was possible that if you develop, say, meta, but without wisdom, you can just end up in a sort of barn realm, and then when you pass away from that, you end, end up in hell. Is that it? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit of a leap. One comment I can show said, uh, too much meta, you end up with babies. Yes. I'm thinking of a suitor. Um, I think it's a suitor where, if you, if you don't have the wisdom to see the impermanence of it, yeah. you can end up in a sort of blissful state for eons, mm -hmm. but then once the karma wears out, then you can end up making new. I think the suitor does say, you know. Yeah, you can, a, a lesser heavenly realm, it doesn't have to be a hell realm. <laughs> <laughs> or a, you could be you know, reborn in the human realm, but uh, you know. yeah, so there it's. Um, I mean, there's one, one in one sutta that the Buddha casually mentions that um, uh, on the basis of practicing loving kindness, when he was a yogi, he practiced loving kindness for seven years, and he was born in, as a Brahma deity for like 35 lifetimes. 
like gazillions of, of, of uh, years of, of life in the Brahma realms, just uh, seven years of practicing Metavalvana. But then he ended up in the human realm again, and things carried on. But um, that, um, yeah, that it does have those good results. But yeah, if it's like snakes and ladders. You know, you go up the ladders and down the snakes. I think it's an ancient Indian form of teaching the laws of karma. Snakes and ladders. <laughs> okay. So to continue. The cessation cycle focuses explicitly on causes and conditions. It is impersonal and it points to the utter elimination of such causes and conditions. It includes little mention of good or bad or good uh, of good and bad or good and evil. The path is gradual. It constitutes an increase in the power of goodness to combat and vanquish negative obstructive forces. It emphasizes the abandonment of the bad and the cultivation of the good at many levels. So again that's the the sort of key a- a aspect of the Eightfold Path is its recognition of the wholesome in the different areas of our life, in terms of view, in terms of thought, in terms of speech and action, livelihood, um, mental training, and concentration and mindfulness and so on. And so it's very much built around recognizing the, the, the wholesome and the unwholesome, you know, seeing the unwholesome arising and letting go of it, seeing the wholesome and cultivating it, maintaining it. Um, and that, that isn't really given such explicit mention in the uh, dependent origination, cessation patterns. And then the cessation cycle is theoretical, the path is practical and methodical. To use an analogy, the cessation cycle is like the set of principles involved in extinguishing a fire. Fuel must be removed, the oxygen supply cut off, and the temperature reduced. The path is similar to the methods used to achieve results based on these principles. What is needed to remove the fuel, cut off oxygen and reduce temperature? This requires much effort, both in acquiring the necessary equipment and planning tactics. Should water or an alternative fire retardant be used? What tools are needed? How should one respond to the, in the case of ordinary fires, electrical fires, oil fires, gas fires? How does one access the fire and protect oneself? How does one train people to act as firefighters? So that um, the uh, he's again talking about the sort of the multifaceted aspect of, of the path because it you know, is covering the sort of sila samadhi and panya virtue and, and action and and speech and then attitude in terms of right view and right thought and then in terms of mind training with. Um, concentration, um, uh, effort concentration and mindfulness. So all these different dimensions of our uh, our world and then the, his, uh, these different aspects of fire reduction, fire ex- fire extinguishing and the different things we need to think about. Like uh, So in terms of the Eightfold Path, think, uh, to bring attention to our attitudes, our, our views, our thoughts, uh, our speech, our actions, our livelihood, and you know, the way we work with our mind in meditation, all of those different areas need to be considered and brought into the, the picture. Similarly, the cessation cycle is like a set of principles involved in treating disease, which refers directly to the removal of pathological elements. 
the elimination of germs, the removal of toxins and foreign substances, the repair of faulty or weakened tissues and organs, the supply of deficient nutrients, and the improvement of one's mental condition. The path is like the treatment of disease, which may only involve a brief review of medical principles and yet comprise elaborate and complex procedures, including examination, diagnosis, medication, surgery, nursing, physiotherapy, the manufacture and use of medical equipment, the creation of clinics and hospitals, health administration, and the training of medical staff. So again, it's a different way of representing that same uh, sort of multifaceted aspect of, of the Eightfold Path of you know, that um, the uh, the various uh, uh, many and various different forms of of approach and things that are needed in order to help the whole system to arrive at a, a state of health. Um, so the eightfold path is similarly multi multifaceted and it works in a great variety of ways. Any questions, thoughts? Yes. As you just mentioned, it seems like uh, one has to be really fast and creative in practice because uh, it seems like like human mind works in the way that when we take task, we get discouraged by it quickly if we don't get results. So we apply something that doesn't work <laughs> and keep on doing yes. it. Like and the the satisfaction, uh, the attention span gets shorter and shorter and shorter all the time. So we get we get disappointed more quickly nowadays. <laughs> Yes, yes. So it seems that um, for each individual, like there is a map, but it seems that practitioners who went really far, they was um, developing their own um, skillful means, like each one, right? So it uh, should be some creativity and maybe using like uh, your own areas that you have in previous life or something like this, like this different situation maybe. Um, maybe you can share some like, unusual approaches. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say uh, uh, that just following a formula, like, oh, this is what you should do, and then following a formula, uh, like being obedient to a formula, uh, almost always it's not, it's not going to quite fit your own particular character or your own situation, your own conditioning. And so I would agree with you. It's often the people who, who say, "Hey, wait a minute! You know, how does this work for me?" Or that's what the book says, or that's what that's what the the, the formula says. But uh, how's how's that going to work? Or what about if I do this instead? So that kind of creativity around that the obedience on its own, following a, a system that uh, that's a I would say is a, a slow path to to liberation. And that the kind of curiosity or interest, the, the sense of picking things up and say, "Well, hang on a minute, how does this work for me?" Or uh, what, you know, what, uh, "What's that? Why does this work this way?" Or "What about if I do it that way?" That kind of interest, uh, curiosity, experimental attitude is that's generally going to have a, a, a um, uh, uh, an effect of of um, say speeding up the process of understanding and, and liberation now i'm not i'm not saying obedience is a bad thing <laughs> but uh, it, it it can be simple just okay these are the instructions follow the instructions this is the way you do it and something can just sort of switch off because you're following the system but it's often the people who say well wait a minute that's what the system says but how does this work or what about this what about that that, that kind of exploratory attitude uh, is is very helpful 
I would say both uh, Lumpur Sumato and, and uh, Lumpur Cha are very, very creative in their, their teaching methods and their practices they done for, did for themselves. That uh, they would um, you know try things out and see see what the result was, and not just sort of following a, a formula handed to them, but being ready to to experiment. Like uh, I remember Lumpur Sumato not long ago, he was talking about how in uh, he. Um, he was very frustrated. I think it was the lodgings monk, the, the, the lodgings monk at Wat Bapong. He had a difficult relationship with him, and he he was very uh, very upset with with him in particular about some particular some some issue, and um, so he got into this this very uh, you know, uptight, frustrated state, and so. Uh, he took himself off to a corner of Wat Bapong where there were no other people around, and he just started swearing. And he said, I, "I spent." He spent four years in the United States Navy, so he developed quite a good vocabulary in terms of <laughs> bad language. And he just let rip. And he was kind of cursing everybody: the Buddha, Ajahn Chah, his mother, his father, every you know, every everybody, um, God and Jesus and all the angels and Blessed Virgin Mary. They all came in for it. And so they, <clears throat> he just kind of. Uh, just swore at everybody and, and cursed every everybody and everything, um, which is not in the Pali canon. You know, it's not recommended. <laughs> but uh, he just had this sense of he was sort of trying to be this good monk and trying to do everything right, and he was just getting more and more uptight and tense. And, and there was all this, this um, I shouldn't be thinking that. You know, that uh, I should be a good monk. I should, uh, I should, I should. And he just thought, well, let's try going in the opposite direction and see what happens. And he thought. Oh, <laughs> felt very kind of refreshed and unburdened, you know. When he was, you know, cursing all the great, uh, the great holy beings, he was, he didn't really want them to be to, uh, cursed or tor- torn into pieces. But it was it, just saying all those unsayable things was it helped to energetically to rebalance things. In there. <clears throat> and so yeah, there's all, all kinds of. Um, uh, Different practices that they that they would use. One one practice Ajahn Chah taught that uh, was he said um, you can do a, a kind of pocket version of walking meditation, which is um, you take a take a glass and you put it down and you leave it there for exactly a minute. He said not fifty nine seconds, not sixty one seconds, exactly sixty seconds. And at sixty seconds you move it over there, and then you time it for another sixty seconds, and then you move it back again. You do that for an hour. <laughs> and, so, and just watch what your mind does with that. Like, this is totally stupid. This is crazy. Why am I doing this? And just, just to watch what your mind does with, with, with a, a simple set of activities like that. It's good for rainy days. <laughs> you can't do walking meditation outside. So, and again, you won't find that in the Pali Canon. Or oh, you never, I've never heard any other Dhamma teacher talk about that. But. Um, so there, there's quite a number of practices like that, um, that, uh, or uh, the, um, uh, yeah, there's just many things where they would just try things out and didn't didn't mean to say that everything that they tried had a good result, uh, but that that kind of experimental curiosity is a really helpful. Part of uh, of the practice, so, and yeah, and using your own uh, your own abilities, you know, or to using the skills that you have, or that uh, 
particular disposition you have to uh, I mean like you're a, you're an artist so you could uh, I mean I thought that was tell you what to do but you could you could create a um uh, pictures of uh, Anagarika Evgenia's defilements or uh, her spiritual qualities you know just kind of see what just have that as an idea and see what happens so yeah you know, Evgenia's wisdom looks like what just see how your your hand moves across the page or <laughs> or Evgenia's big problem you know, how many pages do we need so just to uh, just to, to see how things take shape okay so we go on to breaking the cycle <clears throat> the Buddha described another format for the cessation cycle of dependent origination the initial part of this format begins with the standard origination cycle for, from ignorance to the arising of suffering from there however Instead of describing the cessation cycle, it describes a connected process of wholesome qualities leading up to and ending with awakening. This is a completely new format which does not refer to the cessation of any of the factors in the origination cycle. This outline is an important example of applying the factors of the path in a system of Dhamma practice. In other words, it's a process that occurs for a person who successfully follows the path and reaches perfect realization. The Buddha described this format for liberation on many occasions with slight variations in detail. And so it's kind of similar to the, the, the apple tree one where it goes up to, to feeling and then is um, he, uh, headed by concentration, dominated by mindfulness, surmounted by wisdom, and then leads to deliverance and, and nibbana. Uh, but this goes on further. This actually goes all the way to dukkha, and then dukkha leads to uh, faith, as we shall see. So it goes, avijja, sankara, vijnana, namarupa, salayatna, pasa, vedana, tanna, upadana, bhava, jati, dukkha. Then, dukkha leads to faith, sadha. Faith leads to joy, pamoja. Uh, joy leads to delight, piti. Piti leads to tranquility, pasadhi, relaxation. Uh, that leads to sukha, happiness, which leads to concentration, samadhi which leads to knowledge and vision according to reality or insight, yatabhutanyanadasana, which leads to disenchantment, nibida, which leads to dispassion, viraga, which leads to vimuti, uh, and liberation and knowledge and of the destruction of mental defilements, kaya-jnana. So that, um, uh, and again, I, I picked that up in the, the other book, the Catastrophe Apostrophe, um, book that dukkha can ripen in two ways. There's more dukkha, that's sort of going around the, the cycle again, or it can ripen in, in search, uh, and that search is connected to this quality of, of faith, sadha, that there's the faith that there's got to be an alternative to this, uh, alternative to this, this can't be the whole story, there, there must be a, uh, a way out of this. Now, where is that way? What is that way? So that, that faith, um, sadha, is that sense of, of a kind of intuitive wisdom that is, that, uh, is there in the mix. And that, so the mind is choosing to listen to that voice that says, hang on a minute, <laughs> I'm doing this again. And I was sure I was never going to do this again. I'm doing it again. Now, do I have to do this? Uh, is there another way? This process begins with ignorance until it reaches suffering. The word dukkha here replaces the terms jara, marna, sokaparideva, etc. 
But from this point, instead of linking with ignorance and resuming the cycle of origination, it proceeds in a wholesome, positive direction, with faith taking over from ignorance. It finally reaches knowledge and the destruction of the taints and does not link up with ignorance again. If one counts suffering as a pivotal factor, the number of factors both preceding and following suffering is identical. This new outline can be divided into two parts. First, from, from ignorance to suffering, and second, from faith to knowledge of the destruction of the taints. In the second part, faith replaces ignorance as the initial factor. Referring back to an earlier section of this book, one can recognize that faith here is equivalent to a disciplined, quote-unquote, or weakened form of ignorance. At this stage, ignorance is no longer totally blind, but is imbued with a grain of understanding, which buds as an aspiration to reach a virtuous goal and blossoms into true knowledge and complete liberation. In this instance, when the cycle has proceeded from ignorance and reached suffering, one seeks an escape. If one receives correct instruction or considers carefully the law of cause and effect, and one has gained confidence in goodness, the arising of faith, sadha, then there will arise joy, contentment and a determination to gradually advance in virtue until the end is reached. So the, uh, there's, a, um, uh, the, there's many of these, these processes that are described um, uh, in, the, uh, in the Pali Canon, as he was mentioning, and that, that uh, when there's that faith that you, there has to be a way out, and then following that, then that sense of, of, uh, of delight or pomoja, it's like it's that awakening of, of, uh, of intuition, like, yeah, that's right, you know, I've been trying to give up smoking or trying to, to um, uh, you know, not uh, follow this or that habit, and you think, oh yeah, I can do that, I, I don't have to follow that habit. Yeah, great, this is possible. So that uh, joy, pomoja, and delight, piti, come from that, uh, that sense of, yes, this is possible, and that those lead on to tranquility and happiness, sukha, and which then support concentration, samadhi. And so that there's a, uh, that sense of, yes, there's a possibility that leads to a, uh, this isn't totally hopeless, uh, that there is a, you know, there's a way forward and there's a, a, a quality of ease that can get really, uh, uh, say, become an abiding presence in the, in the jitta, in the heart. And then that ease, that quality of ease, and then supports contentment, sukha, happiness. And then that that contentment or happiness, it's a support for samadhi. It's like if you're if you're happy here at Amravati, you're not thinking about going other places. So that the, there isn't a cause for restlessness. If you're unhappy here, you're thinking a lot about where else to go and what else to do. So that that if there's a lack of ease then that causes agitation. If there's a basis of ease and contentment, then there isn't the, the causes for agitation making the mind want to be anywhere other than here and now. So that's a support, a natural support for concentration. And in, in another sutta, the Buddha says, yeah, one who experiences contentment and ease, that pasadhi and sukha, there's no need for them to think, may the mind be concentrated because it's natural, it's in accordance with nature. The one who's at ease and one who's content, their mind will naturally be concentrated. And then for one whose mind is concentrated, there's no need for them to, to wish, may uh, knowledge and vision of the way things are arise because it's natural. If uh, the mind is concentrated, then knowledge and vision uh, will arise. And then for one who's in whom insight or knowledge and vision has arisen, then there's no need for them to think, 
may there be dispassion and detachment. May there may there be letting go. Because if there's a, a if the insight into anicca dukkha anatta arises, then naturally there's a letting go because it's recognized all things are impermanent and nothing can be owned. So and who is there to own it? So that that quality of viraga and and um, <coughs> nipita disenchantment uh, arises, and then the result of that is is vimuti, is is a liberation and uh, the sense of of freedom uh, and the uh, ending of the outflows uh, as a, r- a result of that. So that's not all in one one single teaching, but those are they are very closely related and they map onto each other very neatly. The second part of the new outline is in fact the same as the standard cessation cycle of dependent origination. Ignorance ceases, leading to volitional formations and so on. This new outline merely describes the prominent factors of the cycle in greater detail and emphasizes the connection between the origination cycle and the cessation cycle. In the Neti Pankarana, which is one of the um, uh, books of the Pali Canon, The following teaching by the Buddha is interpreted as a transcendent form of dependent origination, i.e. the mode of cessation. Virtuous conduct, Ananda, has the benefit and reward of Uh, non-remorse. So that freedom from remorse uh, is... So if you you keep the sila, you don't have to regret having done unskillful things because you haven't done them. And if you sometimes when when you talk about that, you say that oh, you don't know my mind, Ajahn. Even if I <laughs> even if I've been perfectly behaved, I can still be filled with regret and self-criticism. But uh, uh, according to this teaching, if there is if the if there is sila, if the sila is being respected, then the reward is, of sila has the benefit of non-remorse, freedom from remorse. Now, non-remorse, freedom from remorse, has the benefit and reward of joy. Joy has the benefit and reward of delight. Delight has the benefit and reward of tranquility. Tranquility has the benefit and reward of happiness. Happiness has the benefit and reward of concentration. Concentration has the benefit and reward of knowledge and vision of of things as they really are. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are has the benefit and reward of disenchantment. Disenchantment has the benefit and reward of dispassion. Dispassion has the benefit and reward of the knowledge and vision of liberation. In this way, Ananda, virtuous conduct brings the succeeding qualities to perfection for reaching step by step the fruit of arahantship. And uh, that is uh, uh, also, you find the same passage in the, um, a couple of places in the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the numerical discourses. I think it's in the Book of the Tens. Um, I didn't uh, didn't check the reference there, but uh, I believe you'll find those teachings there in the Book of the Tens as well. This teaching can be illustrated easily as follows. Virtuous conduct leads to non-remorse. That leads to joy, leads to delight, leads to tranquility, to happiness, and to concentration, to knowledge and vision of things as they are, i.e. to insight, vipassana. That leads to disenchantment, and to dispassion, and knowledge and vision of liberation. This process is almost identical to the outline above, except that it begins with moral conduct and non-remorse instead of faith. And it only describes the cessation cycle. It does not refer to the origin of suffering. It's fair to say, however, that the meanings of the two formats are essentially the same. 
And uh, for those of you who like diagrams, you have a nifty diagram where he's spelling all that, that out, these different different pathways. You've got the, the cycle down at the bottom, and then these the, the kind of exit points there, and one of them being skillful conduct, one of them being faith, and then the third one there is wise reflection. The first format focuses on a situation where faith is the predominant factor. When a person has faith, faith in virtue and confidence in the law of cause and effect, this state of mind is connected to conduct. Faith is supported by virtuous conduct and thus leads to gladness. The second format focuses on, on conduct as the predominant factor. In this situation, the mind has a foundation of faith and confidence which promotes virtuous conduct. Virtuous conduct leads to an untroubled mind. One has self-confidence in one's good actions. Uh, this self-confidence is an attribute of faith, sattā, which also leads to gladness. The following factor. The final factors of the first format end with liberation and with knowledge of the destruction of the taints, while the second format ends with knowledge and vision of liberation. These two endings are identical in meaning. The second format combines liberation with knowledge of the destruction of the taints into a single factor. There is another outline similar to the one beginning with faith, but here faith is replaced by wise reflection. So you have wise reflection leading to joy and delight, tranquility and so forth, all the way through to liberation. This teaching does not introduce a radically different idea. The process simply begins with a person's ability to analyze and to apply wisdom to investigate cause and effect. Instead of beginning with faith, which is equivalent to entrusting one's wisdom to someone or something else, this process begins with proper attention, which leads to an understanding of things as they truly are and to a bright and joyous mind. The subsequent factors are the same as in the preceding formats. So wise reflection is that, uh, that kind of curiosity, uh, investigation, exploring the patterning of things. It's also interesting with respect to so Western psychology, how um, that uh, having a in Western psychology it's talked about in terms of having a, a positive self-image um, or a, 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 a solid ego and uh, as a sort of foundation for mental health and well-being, and that uh, and so that uh, or that uh, there was a, a, a book written by. Uh, a Buddhist psychologist called Mark Epstein a number of years ago called You Have to Be Somebody Before You Can Be Nobody. Uh, and I bumped into him on the street actually in New York and, uh, and uh, we got chatting and uh, he said that he regrets having written that book. He's, I think he's, <laughs> <laughs> he's, uh, he's, the more recent ones have got a bit of a different theme, but uh, at the time it made sense. It was, uh, it was very much in that therapeutic model. But uh, what, this, what this is pointing to, rather than, you know, you've got to have a healthy ego before you can let go of the, like, you've got to be somebody before you can be nobody. You have to have a, a healthy ego before you let go of the ego. It's in, in this sort of expression of Buddhist psychology, there isn't a, a sense of self in, in there, but rather um, you have freedom from remorse, um, faith, so that, you, you know, you can look upon that and then the sense of, of delight uh, that comes from having faith or having a, a reflective view upon the the experience that that's there, um, or that you're you're living in a virtuous way and the heart is free of of remorse, is uh, free of regrets. That you could 
from one angle you can say well that's that you can call that a positive self-image when you look at your life there's no regrets you feel kind of comfortable you feel at home in your own skin you, you feel at ease with things and so from the western perspective you could say oh that, well that's a positive self-image but from the buddhist perspective it's like no it's not a self-image <laughs> it's just the the pattern of experience in the present moment it, it uh, doesn't have to have a uh, an I or, or a me or a mine involved. So uh, this is the, uh, these are teachings that are helpful to reflect on in that way. That that uh, where they can seem to be conflicting teachings. That you know, say Western psychology says you have to have a healthy ego before you can um, uh, arrive at a sense of of well-being or f- fulfillment and contentment in life. But uh, the um, uh, from the Buddhist perspective that. Uh, it doesn't have to revolve around a sense of of, uh, of I and me and mine at all, but those those qualities of of well-being or a sense of of freedom from remorse, of a quality of faith and and uh, say delight and and ease, uh, physical ease and mental ease that that comes from that, those can all be uh, say established and and felt from moment to moment, but they're not. Uh, Tied up with any sense of uh, of, uh, of ego at all. So, uh, uh, as I said, they've got this nifty diagram here, that, uh, and there's copies of this book around. It's, it uses the same diagram in the previous edition, so that's for easy reference. You can uh, you can um, follow that or draw it out. You know, artists among us can <laughs> can uh, create their own their own version of uh, illustrations of. Delight, joy, tranquility, happiness, concentration, and so on. If they, if you wish, um, but that's, I think, probably enough for today. Uh, and the last part of the, the of the chapter that uh, is going over again that sutta um, about the nutriment of, of ignorance. Um, so I might address that tomorrow. But I think that's enough for this evening. Is there any burning questions? Yes. What was the name of the, the flow chart? Did you, just like the path to cessation, the the list of like dukkha, then disease, um, the the references. You mean the the, yeah, it's the name? If I say, oh, like say you say the another three poisons or the four noble truths or the um the um. There's, well, there's different names. There's one that's that one that uh, that goes. Uh, it's in accordance with nature. That one who keeps the moral precepts doesn't have to think. Um, you know, may I be free from from remorse because it's natural. That's that's known as liberation is a natural process. Um, but uh, the they don't. There isn't really a fixed way of labeling those those sort of liberative aspects. Um, no, you didn't miss a name. There wasn't. There, it's a nameless, <laughs> and a nameless set of processes uh, that uh, you know. Like, so the dependent cessation is the um, the the other way of representing that cycle. But this doesn't, as far as I know, this doesn't have a, a fixed name. But uh, the but that apart from liberation as a natural process, is uh, you know, that that sutta he mentions as. Both from the Neti Pakarana and then also there's the two suttas in the Book of the Tens that are very, very similar. Yeah. Okay, I'll leave it there for today.
Sadam Kagin Dadama Sayyid 